you would, take out your Bibles this morning and open them to Romans 8. Let's, uh, let's bow for prayer. Father, as we come before you this morning, as we have just sung, Father, it's an incredible thing to be able to refer to you that way as our Father. And we know, Lord, that's possible, only made possible because of Christ and because of what he's done. And Father, as we think about the gospel and think about the gift you've given to us of eternal life, Lord, we have been spending several weeks talking about what your word says concerning the resurrection, the day that we all look forward to. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to teach us, that you would continue to enable us, Father, to gain and to possess greater confidence in what your word says, greater confidence in what the future holds. That, Father, we will recognize that we stand on stable ground. The Lord, it will give to us the stability we need to deal with all of life and all of the difficulties that we face and the, the times that we live. We thank you, Father, again, that we know these things are true, that they are, in essence, facts that we know before they take place because they're based on the character of who you are and all that you've done. And so, Father, we ask for your blessing this morning. We ask, Lord, that this time would be immensely profitable for us. And, Lord, it would increase our sense of gratitude to you for who you are and all that you do for us. We thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So over the last several weeks, as we have been looking at 1 Corinthians 15, and then we looked at 1 Corinthians 15 in some detail last week, and talking about the resurrection, we wanted to kind of bring things together to kind of, uh, um, I, I guess, cover a few small things that Paul didn't cover only because there's so much that's there in 1 Corinthians 15 and because there does seem to be uh, a great many questions that people have about the resurrection or perhaps things they've heard uh, and that they maybe have believed or maybe thought about for a long time and those kind of hopefully have been dispelled as we have looked specifically at the Word of God. And then after that, what we're going to do is kind of move into some questions. And so there'll be some review of some of the material, but the idea, once again, in answering questions is to make sure that we're thinking about things biblically, that make sure that's the paradigm, uh, that's the basis of truth that we are considering when we try to figure out the answers to some of these questions that we, that we have, that we normally have about the future and about the dead and about life after death and those types of things. So one of the things I want to make sure that we begin with today is to kind of remind us of the truth of what we find here in Romans. And many, many commentators, many uh, great pastors of the past have talked about this when you look at their sermons, where they talk about that when it comes to salvation, the salvation of the individual believer, that it always again includes the restoration of the body and the soul to a state of integrity, right? In other words, we know that sin and the curse of sin affect not only the soul of man, but the body of man. And as we've been looking at the resurrection there, I believe we've shown in, in the scripture that there has been this emphasis on the body. 
reminding us that when it comes to the resurrection, it's not this idea that somehow the resurrection is spiritual and that there is some sense that we're just kind of floating, but we're happy. Uh, but that there very much is a body, a body of flesh, a body of bones. Uh, and that should help us, I guess, in, in trying to imagine what the future is going to be like. But when it comes to this, it also includes, and it must include this, and we don't always put these things together, and it includes the full restoration of creation. Remember that all of creation was placed under the curse of sin. So man was originally formed from the dust of the earth. He was placed within, and you'll find some commentators using this term, they call it the creation temple. The idea is, is that we've been created to serve God, and God created a place for man to live, for man to flourish, and for man to serve God. And that the Garden of Eden specifically was like a temple. It's not a temple, but we are to think about it in that sense. Uh, that is where God was, that's where God walked with man, that's where man was placed specifically, and man was told to work that garden, all these things being done to please God, and also it brings a fullness and a sense of satisfaction to man and his existence, and so this is where man was placed, and all of that again was ruined, as we know, uh, by sin. And so when it comes to redemption, man is going to be restored to a place of life and service, under the headship or under the dominion of the second Adam, which is Jesus Christ, and in a newly cleansed creation temple. And we know that the Bible talks about that we'll be living for all of eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, and that's where we're going to be living. And so we need to be thinking in terms, when you think about the new earth, it's not a sin for you to think about it in terms of actually being an earth. Uh, sometimes our a sense of being kind of adverse to that uh, really comes from Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the idea that those things that are earthly uh, are sensual and evil, and that the spiritual is good. Remember that in the beginning, when God created heaven and the earth, he said it was good, all of it. He didn't say the spiritual is good. He didn't give man, breathe into man, and made him a living soul and said, well, you know, his soul is good, but the body, well, we'll deal with that, you know, that, that's all I could do for now. But none of that takes place. It's all viewed as being good, all created by God, all done to fulfill his purposes and to bring glory to him. So then when you look at Romans, and I'll begin reading in verse 18, it describes all of creation as really being under the same slavery of corruption that man is under, uh, that afflicts believers in what some refer to as these bodies of humiliation. In other words, there's, there's the, we are humbled by the frailty of the body. We are humiliated by how fragile the body is. Uh, and we even experience it on a daily basis. We, we get embarrassed when our bodies fail us. Uh, and all that is part of what's going on. So Romans chapter 8, beginning of verse 18, Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be, to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So again, you see the emphasis of Paul here, really both on our bodies and the redemption of our bodies, and then again on creation itself, that we are kind of in this together. And creation is viewed as being this thing that's waiting for our glorification. Because creation knows that when we are glorified, creation will be. When we reach full redemption, so to speak, when our redemption is full, creation will be redeemed at the, at the same time. The term that's used to describe the corruption of, of creation in Romans 8 is the same one that's used in 1 Corinthians 15 to describe the corruption of the body. Again, it's the idea that creation itself, as, we, as we've just read, is groaning under the power and the curse of sin, and it mirrors the groanings of believers and what we go through. Creation itself, likewise, awaits eagerly for the revelation of the sons of God because the redemption of God's children is a redemption in which creation itself participates. That's how it's viewed here when you read what Paul has written. So the future liberation of creation from its present corruption and bondage will occur only in conjunction with the believer's liberation from corruption and death. So the link here between the resurrection of the believer and the renewal of the creation really is an intimate one. Without the glorification of creation, the glorification of the new humanity in Christ would be really an isolated and a strange event. And God doesn't plan it that way, and it's not going to be that way. So there's this intimate link that joins the salvation of the church, or joins the salvation of the members of Christ's body with the great events really of a cosmic renewal that will accompany Christ's return at the end of the age. And of course, I've mentioned before briefly, there's this debate among theologians when it comes to the new heavens and new earth. Will the old heaven and new earth be completely destroyed and it's a brand new creation? Or is there going to be basically a cleansing by fire um, of the old creation and then it's, it will be reformed into the new heavens and new earth? That's where I lean, but if you want to lean the other way, it's okay. There's nothing to argue about with that. Uh, the fact is there's going to be a new creation, a new earth, and I can't wait. Uh, and I'm not going to be disturbed, whichever, whichever it is. Um, but again, there's this legitimate sense when we look at all this then, that the justification and the sanctification of the believer finds a parallel in the justification and sanctification of heaven and earth in the new creation. Just as the Lord declared the first creation uh, in its state to be very good, so then the renewal or renewed creation will be worthy of the same judgment. Justified and sanctified saints will dwell then in a justified and sanctified creation. A people holy unto the Lord, a royal priesthood. We will enjoy fellowship with the Lord in the sanctuary of his renewed creation. And of course, there's nothing then that exists that will tarnish or damage or diminish or hurt uh, this relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. So when it comes to this, I want to take a few moments this morning, because as we, we don't do this very often as Baptists, to look at some church history and to look at some of the confessions and some of the creeds. And, and that's important. Remember that the church has always had that. We have a doctrinal statement. Same thing. The idea is this is what we believe and this is why we believe these things. And so that's why there's all these 
when you look at our doctrinal statements, all these passages of Scripture. So you can look it up and see, okay, that's why they believe that. That's what the Scripture says. And through the years, what we also need to remember is that many things that we believe were built on the study and the conclusions that believers came to before us from those from 100 years ago and from those from 500 years ago and before. None of us are Christians in isolation in that sense. In fact, in Peter, he talks about the fact that when it comes to understanding the scripture, that there is no such thing as any private interpretation. And the emphasis that, that Peter is making there when he makes that statement is that the, the word of God, the teaching of the word of God really is plain. Now, you, you have to study it. You know, it's not like 15-second sound bites where all the truth is just obvious. It does require work and study and thinking because of the complexity and really beauty of all that God has given us. But there's also this idea that God has given to the churches teachers. Remember, it's plural. Many of them who've, who have studied and written and then it's been refined and at times changed and even argued about as we continue to study the Bible and come to a better and a clearer understanding of what the Word of God says. And when it comes to things that maybe we believe now, one of the reasons why we compare our theology and always look back is to make sure we're on the right track. Now, if we end up believing a few things that may be a little different than, let's say, what the early church believed, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're wrong, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're wrong, but we do have to go back and look at it and study it to see what did we change, or where did we change, and then why, and then again, always, is it biblical? Is it, a, is it correct for us to change or not? And this idea, again, that many believers do have, that again, our resurrection is spiritual, even though we, we, don't, we can't really pin down what that's supposed to mean, we do think that whatever it is, it is the opposite or something other than, again, a flesh and bones kind of resurrection. But that's not what the early church has always, that's one of the consistencies of what the church has always believed is in the bodily resurrection of Christ and the bodily resurrection of believers. To not believe that is really, that's the effects of Gnosticism, which is an old philosophy uh, that has been around really for hundreds and hundreds of years and continues to kind of worm its way into the church. So in fact, in your, in your bulletins, there's a, uh, I think just a one-page Thing that talks about the Apostles' Creed uh, and then a really short uh, paragraph about the Belgic Confession. Just to kind of give you a little bit of background uh, of that and where that's come from because, again, it's important. Uh, but when it comes to the Apostles' Creed, uh, we then learn from, from that what the, many in the early church believed a long time ago. And in it, it says, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Now, early on, when, we, when you look at the creed, you know, as it was written in the 1500s, the word body really isn't in there. It's the word flesh. And the idea is that there's the resurrection of the flesh. I'm not sure all the reasons why they substituted later on the word body for flesh. Uh, but I do know that in the original language of the creed, the church was deliberately trying to oppose Gnosticism and the spiritualizing tendency that people had when they read the Bible. And so they wanted to make sure that it was clear that when it came to what the church believed about the resurrection, that it was the resurrection of the flesh. 
of, of the flesh that we have. That's, that's what it's talking about. In the Belgic Confession, it affirms that all the dead shall be raised out of the earth and their souls joined and united with their proper bodies in which they formerly lived. In the 39 Articles of the Church of England, in Article 4, it reads of the resurrection of Christ. It reads this way. Christ did truly rise again from death and took again his body with flesh and bones and all things appertaining to the perfection of man's nature, wherewith he ascended into heaven and there sits until he returns to judge all men at the last day. So remember that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he ascended to heaven in the body that he was raised from the dead with, that the apostles talked with, walked with, ate with, and all the rest. He is the perfect God-man. Jesus is still that. He is still the perfect God-man. He sits in heaven as the Son of Man, as well as the Son of God. He, that's what he is. That's who he is. When he returns, he returns in the same way that he ascended. You know, it's not, it's not some spirit floating around. It's his body. When you read in the book of Revelation about the eternal order, one of the things that's unique is the scars on the body of Christ remain. As a reminder of the redemption. And so there are all these clues, all of these statements that are made to remind us that flesh and blood is not evil. It, it, it was under, it's under the curse of sin, and that's why there's evil, but in and of itself it's not that, and again it will be redeemed. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, as it goes through an exposition of the resurrection of Christ, it reads this way, Christ was exalted in his resurrection in that, not having seen corruption in death and having the very same body in which he suffered with the essential properties thereof, but without mortality and the other common infirmities belonging to this life, really united to his soul, he rose again from the dead and a third day by his own power. So again, all these great academics through the years who, who scour the word of God and are, the, are experts in scripture throughout church history, as they look at this, they are making sure they emphasize that Jesus Christ was not just raised from the dead with a body, but with the very same body. Why would they emphasize that if the Bible doesn't emphasize that? They're emphasizing that because that is in the scripture, as we have seen over the last several weeks. And then also, again, to, to, to combat the Gnosticism of things that were creeping into the church that were beginning to, to lead people away from their hope in Christ. And he wanted to make sure that they understood that. Then there's the London Baptist Confession of 1689. In chapter 31 of that confession, of the state of man after death and the resurrection of the dead, it reads this way in paragraph 1. The bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption. But their souls which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal substance, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into paradise where they are with Christ and behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torment and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Then in paragraph 2, it says this, At the last day, such of the saints as are found alive shall not sleep but be changed. And all the dead shall be raised up with the self-same bodies and none other, although with different qualities, 
which shall be united again to their souls forever. And again, when we say different qualities, the emphasis is all those things that are of the curse of sin, the decaying, the aging, for me, it would be both titanium knees, gone. All right, now it won't be that I won't have any knees. I'll have knees, but they won't be titanium any longer. All right, it'll be brought back together. So you have arthritis, gone. Cancer, gone. It's all gone. You still have a body. It's just now, you know how, how kids will be. Of course, some adults are this way too. So does that mean that if you smash your hand with a hammer, it won't hurt? I don't know. I don't think so. But then, of course, we could get into a debate as to whether or not you're even capable of smashing your hand with a hammer. I'm not even sure you're going to need a hammer. Eh, you might, because I think we're still going to do a bunch of stuff. Uh, but whatever it is, the idea is you're going to have a body. And so, again, that's important because it does, as we then get into the answering of the common questions and maybe concerns that people have, that makes all the difference in the world. It lays the foundation for really some of the answers that are going to give to us really great comfort. So the creeds and the statements throughout church history clearly show their teaching to be that the resurrection body is substantially the same as the present body, again, at least as far as its material or its flesh and blood. Uh, the properties, again, belonging, to, belonging naturally to the body remain true of the resurrection body through all those features. Uh, uh, and again, as it says in Philippians, it talks about the body of humiliation, uh, and that's what's being dealt with. So we're going to deal at least with one of the common questions, and that is regarding the body uh, of believers who die. Most believers, when they face the reality of their own death uh, or the death of fellow believers, uh, they confront questions that are unavoidable. Those questions, among others, are, well, so what are the implications, uh, or what implications do the confessions or does the scripture of the resurrection have for believers and how we should treat and regard the body of those who are dead? Will the resurrection body be sufficiently similar to our present body that they will, that they will be recognized? What about the resurrection of the bodies of those who have been destroyed through cremation or maybe some other means? What about the resurrection of those who die in infancy? What about those whose bodies or minds or both, or both were deformed or handicapped through illness and disease? How do we answer those with any confidence? There is an asking and answering of these questions that's important. We want to make sure that when we do that, we don't go, I guess, too far. I mean, there, there is such a thing, I believe, as biblical speculation that you're within a safe, safe realm, that we're not going to be overly dogmatic, but we'll say, well, the scripture says this and this and this and this, so therefore this and this. But we have to be careful with that uh, and make sure that we don't uh, go in the wrong direction uh, with that. But at the same time, it's not wrong to do that because God has given to us his word so that these things can be dealt with and answered. So the first one then is how should we treat the body of those who have died? When a believer dies, how should the body be dealt with? And, and that question is raised, maybe even more so now than ever, uh, because of the expense of burial, uh, because of the um, ease and maybe the cost effectiveness of cremation. Uh, and there are those who, who want to, uh, to deal with that. And then there's something that maybe all of you 
and myself included, have either said or thought that's actually really Gnostic. All of us have been Gnostic at maybe at some point. You didn't intend to be, but you were. And that's when we say this. When, the, when we go to the viewing, the body's laid in the casket, and we say, for example, uh, uh, not uh, yesterday, the night before, I went to the viewing for Jim Parker. Jim Parker's laying in the casket. And someone says, that's not Jim. Now, I know what they normally mean by that, because we know that Jim is with the Lord. But we make this statement, that's not Jim. And we might even add to it, that's just his body. What do we mean by that? It's just his body. That's actually a little Gnostic. Just his body? That it's got nothing to do with Jim? That it no longer has anything to do with him? That there is no connection between the two? That's not what the scripture teaches. And so we need to be careful. Now we've all been forgiven of our Gnosticism. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank goodness. Because it was never my intent to be a Gnostic. But I know I've said that kind of thing more than once. And so we have to kind of nuance what we say at times as we learn more about the Bible and learn theology. And of course, I don't know about you, but that's what gets me into trouble sometimes. When I learn these things, I want to hold on to them tight, and then I'm with somebody, and they make that statement. That's not Jim. So do I allow them to continue to spread this lie? Do I, do I allow them to go, this, this untruth to go unchecked? Is it the appropriate time to say something then? Do I even know the person? Do they know me? And can I say it in such a way that they, that they don't want to smack me? Because they're not, they, we don't have, you know, whatever I've got to explain to them cannot be said in three seconds. This is not going to happen. And so there are times, wisdom says, you've got to bite your tongue because it's not the place. And of course, you know, we've talked about this before when people are at a funeral who mean well, you know, when someone dies and they'll say, well, you know, uh, heaven gained another angel. And heaven didn't gain another angel, right? God's not creating angels any longer. And when human beings die, they go to heaven, they don't become angels. You're not given wings. I'm not even sure we can fly. Maybe we can, maybe we, and I don't think we all learn how to play the harp. Because, you know, that's people's idea of an angel. But the thing is, is that that's not what's taking place. And so, we, and so, you know, when you hear those things, especially if you've got kids, and you've got to make sure at some point, you remind your kids, I know you heard so-and-so say this, we know that's not true and this is why. That's also why I believe, just kind of as a side note, it's really important as you raise your children that you bring them to a viewing in the funerals because they need to learn about death and resurrection from mom and dad. Because if, if you don't, then they're going to hear it from someone else and who knows what they're going to hear. And we should be the ones who want to explain these things to them. So you're not saving your, your kids from any kind of trauma by not bringing them to a funeral. Or, and, and it may be traumatizing for some. But I'm also of the mindset that you want your kids to go through some trauma and I want to be or you want to be the one to comfort them with the truth. 
because you're their mom and dad, and they're going to hear it from you when they're young. They're going to listen, and they're going to remember. So please don't, you know, a lot of Christians have done that. I don't get that. And maybe it's out of convenience because they don't want to drag their kids around. And I'm also big on dragging your kids almost everywhere. I think it's important, right? Because you want to experience life together, and your job is to teach them. So when it comes to these things, you know, it, it is important what we say. And it is important to be able to, to articulate what we, what we believe to be true. And when people make these statements, again, meaning well, again, most, most everyone, maybe everyone, but most everyone, they mean well when they say this. They want to make sure that, that we are understanding that that person, that person themselves, their soul isn't dead, that they are with God. But there's other ways that we can say that. So again, I don't think we're giving any good genuine comfort to those who are mourning the death of, of the one um, who has died. And remember that death does not disrupt the fellowship that we have with Christ. It doesn't do that. That, that person is at home with the Lord. So again, we want to make sure that we're not somehow uh, unintentionally promoting the idea that the person who has died, uh, that it somehow it's not consistent with, with the hope of the resurrection. So let me read this to you. I came across this and, and thought it was well said. And this is what they said. Furthermore, to say that the body of a believer is only a body, that it is in no respect to be identified with the one who has died, is probably misleading. Why? Because our redemption includes the restoration and the reintegration of the soul and body. The body remains an essential part of our identity. The comfort which is ours in the face of death is not simply that we go to be with the Lord or that we anticipate seeing God in our flesh. If you read Job chapter 19, verse 26, he says, And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Now, so when it comes then to how do we treat the body, when it comes, to, for example, to the, to the whole question of cremation. You scour the New Testament, it's not discussed. It's not in there. Whether to cremate or not cremate. I do believe that it's, it's, it is up to the individual. And uh, there are times when it can't be helped. And some individuals try to use this logic. Well, there's a resurrection at the end. If you cremate him, then what's the Lord going to raise from the dead? Well, you know, that's not a problem because some Christians die in a fire horribly. I don't think we go around telling people, well, someone's going to die in a house fire. I guess there won't be any resurrection for them. We don't do that. So that we know there needs to be some consistency, at least in what we think is our logic. So the, and I know that in the Old Testament, there was always a forbidding of creation. But the main reason for that, you see, is because that's what all the pagan religions around the area, that's what they were practicing. And it had everything to do with the kinds of beliefs they had. Now, it is true that in the Bible, throughout the Bible, there is always a respect for the body because of the resurrection. And that's why you will see, uh, even in our society, which really is mostly secular, there's still the bearing of the bodies. I, I know for many it's just a tradition, but that tradition comes from the truth of the Word of God. It is interesting, if you go to certain Asian, Asian countries, you're hard-pressed to find a, a, a graveyard. They have them, but there's not many. I don't, you know, like... In America, graveyards are not only, there's not only a high number of them, some of them are so famous, there's tours of graveyards. Imagine for some foreigners how weird that is. They're going to 
to a place where there's no one they know is buried there, but they want to go and look at the graves of dead people. I mean, I remember as a kid, we went to Boot Hill. I thought that was pretty cool. You know, You'd read the dumb sayings on the, <laughs> on, the, on, the, on, the, on the gravestones or actually the piece of wood that was rotting away. But, but when you go to a lot of these other countries, they don't have that. So there's always been a, a, a great respect for the body because of the teaching on the resurrection. But it's not a sin to cremate. Now, I'll tell you this. If you have doubts about that and you go ahead and cremate, that might be a sin for you. You violated your conscience. Right? So it's okay if for you, if you believe, no, there's no way anyone in my family is ever going to be cremated. That's fine. That there's nothing wrong with that. At the same time, if you believe, ah, I don't want my family to be burdened and we're just going to be cremated, that's not a sin. It's not a sin. Uh, and so, again, biblically, we're, we're given that freedom. And I know some people don't like that, but that's, that's, you know, you look at what the Bible says, and we are fine when it comes to that. So we need to make sure that whatever our convictions are, that we follow through on them. Uh, but don't then use that to judge others and somehow think so-and-so is in sin because they were... Um, they had someone in their family cremated, or maybe that somebody is, is just uh, maybe being a legalist by not cremating. It's really, really neither one of those things. But again, the key for us is to recognize that there is still a great importance of the body. So we don't worship the body, but we know that it's important. And we know that the body that you have is important. And the body you have now is the body that will be raised and reunited with your soul and you will live for all of eternity in the body that you have, minus those things that are affected by the curse of sin. And so that then leads, I think, to some wonderful answers to other questions that we will ask and answer next week. Because I can't answer all of them now. Now, I know what you hope the answers will be, and you might be right, you might be wrong. But also, at the same time, we want to make sure that we have the reasoning correct as well. Right? We want to make sure we know why we believe what we believe. So are you going to recognize your loved ones in heaven? Yes or no? And how do we know that? And uh, there's actually those who believe that we won't recognize them, and they, they quote some Bible verses. So we'll have to take a look at that and make sure that it's understood in its context and all those are the kinds of things that we try to normally do here. But again, what I want you to be reassured of is this, that the teaching of the resurrection of the body the future hope that we have in Christ. Again, it's real. The Bible describes it in a very matter-of-fact way. That it is, uh, in talking about uh, faith or, or our belief, because you know sometimes our, our belief, um, saying we believe something doesn't always sound strong enough, but it, but it is like this. I believe in the facts of history, at least the ones that we know for sure. I believe in the facts of the present, of, of the present, and I believe in the facts of the future because the Bible describes this as factual. It's going to happen because this is what God has revealed to us is going to happen, period. Just, just as clear is, as it's factual that I ate chicken for lunch yesterday, I'll be eating chicken again this coming week, at least once at Popeye's. But the idea is it's a fact. All right, it's going to happen because of, of the character of God. And so we should be comforted by that. It really, even though you, may, you and I may not always consciously think about it, it affects the way we think about death. The death of our loved ones, our, our coming death, and the future. 
And there is a great comfort that sometimes we can kind of, not intentionally, we take for granted, that we just kind of experience all the time because this is a settled truth in our mind. It's just a wonderful gift from God because the whole world is under this horrible curse. And I think we can all agree that death is a horrible curse. It is bad in every way. There is nothing good about death, period. Nothing. And I want that thing to be wiped out from its existence. But as, as long as it's around, I'm able to handle that and to deal with that and not be overwhelmed with grief because Christ has conquered death. And because he's conquered death and because Christ possessed me and I now possess Christ, I've conquered death through Christ. And that is truly good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for the truth of your word. And we ask, Lord, that with all of us who believe in Christ, that our hearts will be both comforted and encouraged and even strengthened. That, Father, that we will be able to face each day with a newfound joy and confidence that there will be a lack of fear, regardless of what's going on in the world, whether there's, because we know, Lord, that, that uh, eventually there will be another virus that people will be afraid of. And there will be something else, some, some biological war agent is going to be stolen from somewhere and there's going to be a threat. And it's just going to continue, Father, until you return. And though, Father, none of us are eager for death to come, we don't despair because of it. And we thank you. Father, we know that there may be some here today who still have a great fear of death. I know, Lord, that if they are a believer, we pray that you would strengthen them and that you would help them to overcome this fear. But, Father, there are others who will not overcome this fear because they don't really know you. They don't know Christ. They are separated from you because of their sin. And so, Father, we ask that they would come to understand the importance of who you are and what you've done, that we've been created in your image, that that image has been ruined by sin, by our sin, and that we, that we stand and live and breathe under your judgment, and that the only escape is to accept the gift that Christ has given to us, that, that we would believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that we would embrace that by faith and be forgiven of our sins. And so, Father, we ask that you would trouble the hearts and minds of those who don't know you, so that, Lord, their thoughts will be drawn to you often until they do what needs to be done. We thank you, Father, again for the presence of your Spirit and for the great gift of your Word that reveals to us these wonderful promises. We thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.